0: Chapters nineteen and twenty of the Avenger by E Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter nineteen Desperate Wooing Rayson felt from the moment he crossed the threshold of the room that he had entered an atmosphere charged with elusive emotion. He was not sure of himself or of her as she turned slowly to greet him. Only he was at once conscious that something of that change in her, which he had prophetically imagined, was already shining out of her eyes. She was at once more natural and further removed from him. "I am glad," she said simply. "I wanted to say good-bye to you." He was stunned for a moment. He had not imagined this. She nodded. "Good-bye," he repeated. "You are going away tomorrow." "Oh, I am glad." "You don't know how glad I am." she swept past him and sank into an easy-chair. She wore a black velveteen evening-dress, cut rather high, without ornament or relief of any sort, and her neck gleamed like polished ivory from which creeps always a subtle shade of pink. Her hair was parted in the middle and brushed back in little ways, her eyes were full of fire, and her face was no longer passive. Beautiful she had seemed to him before, but beautiful with a sort of impersonal perfection she was beautiful now in her own right-the beauty of a woman whom nature had claimed for her own who acknowledges her heritage the fear-frozen subjectivity in which he had yet found enough to fascinate him had passed away he felt that she was a stranger always she murmured i shall think of london as a city of dreadful memories i should like to be going to set my face eastwards or westwards until i was so far away that even memory had perished but that is just where the bonds tell, isn't it? There are many who can make the bonds elastic, he answered. It is only a question of going far enough. Alas, she answered, a few hundred miles are all that are granted to me, and London is like a terrible octopus, its arms stretch out over the sea. A few hundred miles, he repeated with obvious relief, northward or southward, or eastward or westward? Southward, she answered the other side of the Channel. That, at least, is something. I always like to feel that there is sea between me and a place which I loathe.' "'Is London so hateful to you, then?' he asked. "'Perhaps I should not have said that,' she answered. "'Say, a place of which I am afraid.' He looked across at her. He, too, in obedience to a gesture from her, was seated. "'Come,' he said, "'we will not talk of London, then. Tell me where you are going.' she shook her head, to a little paradise I know of. Paradise, he reminded her, was meant for two. "'There will be two of us,' she answered, smiling. He felt his heart thump against his ribs. "'Then if one wanted to play the part of intruder—' She shook her head. "'The third person in paradise was always very much the true,' she reminded him. "'It depends upon the people who are already there,' he protested. "'My friend,' she said, "'is in search of solitude, absolute and complete.' He shook his head. "'Such a place does not exist,' he declared confidently. "'Your friend might as well have stayed at home.' "'She relies upon me to procure it for her,' she said. A rare smile flashed from Rayson's lips. "'You can't imagine what a relief her sex is to me,' he exclaimed. "'I don't know why,' she answered pensively. "'Do you know anything about the north of France, Mr. Rayson?' not much he answered i hope to know more presently her eyes laughed across at him you know what i said about the third person in paradise i can't admit your paradise he said you are a heretic she answered it is a matter of sex of course naturally paradise is so relative it may be the halo thrown round a court in the city or a rose garden in the country any place where love is "'And may I not love my friend?' she demanded. "'You may love me,' he answered, the passion suddenly vibrating in his tone. "'I will be more faithful than any friend. I will build paradise for you, wherever you will. I will build the walls so high that no harm or any fear shall pass them.' She waved him back. Something of the old look which he hated to see was in her face. "'You must not talk to me like this, Mr. Rayson,' she said. "'Indeed, you must not. Why not? he demanded. If there is a reason, I will know it. She looked him steadily in the eyes. Can't you imagine one for yourself? she asked. He laughed scornfully. You don't understand, he said. There is only one reason in the world that I would admit. I don't even know that I would accept that. The other things don't count. They don't exist. She looked at him a little incredulously. She was sitting still, and he was standing now before her her fingers rested lightly upon the arms of her chair she was leaning slightly forward as though watching for something in his face tell me that there is another man he cried that you don't care for me-that you never could care for me-and i will go away and you shall never see my face again but nothing short of that will drive me from you he spoke quickly his tone was full of nervous passion it never occurred to her to doubt him you can be what else you like he continued thief adventurous murderous so long as there is no other man come to me and i will take you away from it all she laughed very softly and his pulses thrilled at the sound for there was no note of mockery there it was the laugh of a woman who listens to hidden music you are a bold lover she murmured have you been reading romances lately do you know that it is the twentieth century and i have seen you three times you don't know what you say you can't mean it by heaven i do he cried and for one exquisite moment he held her in his arms then she freed herself with a sudden start she had lost her composure her cheeks were flushed don't she cried sharply remember our first meeting i am not the sort of person you imagine i never can be there are reasons he swept them aside something seemed to tell him that if he did not succeed with her now his opportunity would be gone forever i will listen to none of them he declared standing between her and the door they don't matter nothing matters i choose you for my wife and i will have you i wouldn't care if you came to me from a prison better give in louise i shan't let you escape she had indeed something of the look of a beautiful hunted animal as she leaned a little towards him her eyes riveted upon his her lips a little parted her bosom rising and falling quickly. She was taken completely by surprise. She had not given race and credit for such strength of mind or purpose. She had believed entirely in her own mastery over him for any such assault as he was now making. And she was learning the truth. Love that makes a woman weak lends strength to the man. Their positions were becoming reversed. It was he who was dictating to her. "'I am going away,' she said nervously. "'You will forget me. You must forget me.' "'You shall not go away,' he answered, "'unless I know where.' "'Don't be afraid. You can keep your secrets, whatever they are. I want to know nothing. Go on exactly with the life you are leading, if it pleases you. I shan't interfere. But you are going to be my wife, and you shall not leave London without telling me about it.' "'I am leaving London,' she faltered. "'To-morrow!' "'I was thinking,' he remarked calmly, "'of taking a little holiday myself.' She laughed uneasily. "'You are absurd,' she declared. "'And you must go away. Really. The Baroness will be home directly. I would rather—I would very much rather that she did not find you here.' He held out his arms to her. His eyes were bright with the joy of conquest. "'I will go, Louise,' he answered. "'But first I will have my answer.' and no answer save one will do. She bit her lip. She was moved by some emotion, but he was unable for the moment to classify it. "'I think,' she declared, "'that you must be the most persistent man on earth.' "'You are going to find me so,' he assured her. "'Listen,' she said firmly, "'I will not marry you.' He shrugged his shoulders. "'On that point,' he answered, "'I am content to differ from you. Anything else?' she stamped her foot. "'I do not care for you. I do not wish to marry you,' she repeated. "'I am going away, and I forbid you to follow me.' "'No good,' he declared stolidly. "'I am past all that.' She held up her finger and glanced backward out of the window. "'It is the Baroness,' she said. "'I must go and open the door.' For one moment she lay passive in his arms. Then he could have sworn that her lips returned his kiss she was there when they heard the turning of a latch-key in the door. With a little cry she slipped away and left him alone. The outer door was thrown open, and the baroness stood upon the threshold. End of chapter 19 CHAPTER 20. STABBED THROUGH THE HEART The baroness recognized Wrayson with a little shrug of the shoulders. "'Ah, my dear Mr. Wrayson," she exclaimed. "'This is very kind of you.' you have been keeping louise company i hope and see what droll things happen it is your friend mr barnes who has brought me home this evening and who will take a whisky and soda before he goes is it not so my friend she turned around but there was no immediate response the baroness looked over the banisters and beheld her escort in the act of ascending coming right along he called out cheerfully it was the cabman who tried to stop me he wanted more than his fare found he tackled the wrong Johnny this time. Mr Sidney Barnes came slowly into view. He was wearing an evening suit, obviously too large for him, a made up white tie had slipped round underneath his ear, a considerable fragment of red silk handkerchief was visible between his waistcoat and much crumpled white shirt. An opera hat also too large for him he was wearing very much on the back of his head, and he was smoking a very black cigar from which he had failed to remove the band. He frowned when he saw Wrayson, who followed the Baroness into the room with a pronounced swagger. You two need no introduction, of course, the Baroness remarked. I am not going to tell you where I found Mr Barnes. I do not expect to be very much longer in England, so perhaps I am not so careful as I ought to be. Louise, if she knew, would be shocked. Now, Mr Wrayson, do not hurry away. You will take some whiskey and soda? I am afraid that my young friend has not been very hospitable. You are very kind, Wrayson said. To tell you the truth, I was rather hoping to see Miss Fitzmaurice again. She disappeared rather abruptly. The Baroness shook her finger at him in mock reproach. You have been misbehaving, she declared. Never mind, I will go and see what I can do for you. She stood for a moment before a looking-glass arranging her hair, and then left the room humming a light tune. Sidney Barnes, with his hands in his pockets, flung himself into an easy-chair i say he began i don't quite see what you're doing here wrayson looked at him for a moment in supercilious surprise i scarcely see he answered how my movements concern you mr barnes was unabashed oh chuck it he declared you know very well what i'm thinking of to tell you the truth i've come to the conclusion that there's some connection between this household and my brother's affairs that's why i'm palling on to the baroness she's a fine woman class you know and all that sort of thing what i want is the shino you tumble wrayson shrugged his shoulders lightly i wish you every success he said personally i think that you are wasting your time here perhaps so barnes answered i've taken my own risks wrayson turned away and at that moment the baroness re-entered the room my friend she said addressing wrayson i can do nothing for you whether you have offended Louise or made her too happy, I cannot say. But she will not come down. You will not see her again tonight. I am sorry, wrayson answered. She is going away tomorrow, I understand. The baroness sighed. Alas, she declared, I must not answer any questions. Louise has forbidden it. wrayson took up his hat. In that case, he remarked, there remains nothing for me but to wish you good night. There was a cab on the rank opposite, and Rayson, after a moment's hesitation, entered it and was driven to the club. He scarcely expected to find anyone there, but he was in no mood for sleep, and the thought of his own empty rooms chilled him. Somewhat to his surprise, however, he found the smoking-room full. The central figure of the most important group was the Colonel, his face beaming with good nature and his cheeks just a little flushed. He welcomed Rayson almost boisterously. Come along, Herbert, he cried. Plenty of room. What'll you have to drink? And have you heard the news? A whiskey and soda, Wrayson answered, sinking into an easy chair, and I haven't heard any news. The colonel took his cigar from his mouth and leaned forward in his chair. He had the appearance of a man who was striving to appear more grave than he felt. You remember the old chap we saw dining at Luigi's tonight? Bentham, I think you said his name was. Wrayson nodded. Of course, what about him? "'He's dead,' the Colonel declared. "'Rayson jumped out of his chair. "'Nonsense!' he exclaimed. "'You don't mean it, Colonel.' "'Unfortunately, I do,' the Colonel answered. "'He was found dead on the stairs leading to his office about ten o'clock to-night. "'A most interesting case. "'The murder, presuming it was a murder, appears to have been committed.' "'Rayson was suddenly pale. "'Murder?' he repeated. "'Colonel, do you mean this?' "'The Colonel, who hated being interrupted, answered a little testily my dear wrayson he expostulated is this the sort of thing a man invents for fun do listen for a moment if you can in patience it is a deeply interesting case if you remember it was about nine o'clock when we left luigi's bentham must have gone almost straight to his office for he was found there dead a very few minutes after ten who killed him and why wrayson asked breathlessly "'That I suppose we shall know later,' the colonel answered. "'The police will be on their mettle this time, but it isn't a particularly easy case. He was found lying on his face, stabbed through the heart. That is all anybody knows.' The thoughts went rushing through Rayson's brain. He remembered the man as he had seemed only a few hours ago, cold, stonily indifferent to young Barnes' passionate questions, inflexibly silent, a man who might easily kindle hatreds. To all appearance, without a soft spot or any human feeling. He remembered the close of their interview, and Sidney Barnes' rash threat. The suggested idea clothed itself almost unconsciously with words. I have just seen young Barnes, he said. He has been at the Empire all evening. The colonel lit another cigar. It takes a man of nerve and deliberation, he remarked, to commit a murder. From what I have heard of him, I should not imagine your young friend to be possessed of either the lady whom he was entertaining, or rather failing to entertain at dinner. "'I have seen her since,' Wrayson interrupted shortly. "'She went straight to the Alhambra.' The Colonel nodded. "'I would have insured her against even suspicion,' he remarked. "'She was a large, placid woman of the flabby order of nerves. She will probably faint when she hears what has happened. She might box a man's ears, but her arm would never drive a dagger home into his heart especially with such beautiful, almost mathematical accuracy. We must look elsewhere, I fancy, for the person who has paid Bentham's debt to society. Hanage has an interesting theory. Wrayson looked across and found that his eyes met Hanage's. He was sitting a little in the background with a newspaper in his hand, which he was, however, only affecting to read. He was taking note of every word of the conversation. He was obviously annoyed at the Colonel's reference to him, but he did his best to conceal it. Scarcely a theory, he remarked, laying down his paper for a moment. I could hardly call it that. I only remarked that I happened to know a little about Bentham, and that his clients, if he had any, were mostly foreigners, and their business of a shady nature. As a matter of fact, he was struck off the rolls here some years ago. I forget the case now, but I know that it was a pretty bad one. "'So you see,' the Colonel resumed, he was probably in touch with a loose lot, though what benefit his death could have been to anyone it is, of course, a little hard to imagine. "'Makes one think somehow of this Mars Barnes affair, doesn't it? "'I wonder if there's any connection between the two. Heneage laid down his paper now and abandoned his attitude of indifferent listener. He was obviously listening for what Rayson had to say. "'Connection of some sort between the two men there certainly was,' Wrayson admitted. "'We know that.' "'Exactly,' Hannaj remarked. "'I speak without knowing very much about the matter, but I am thoroughly convinced of one thing. "'If you can find the murderer of Mars Barnes, you will solve at the same time the mystery of Bentham's death. It is the same affair, part and parcel of the same tangle.' The colonel was silent for a few moments. He seemed to be reflecting on Hanage's words. "'I believe you are right,' he said at last. "'I should be curious to know, though, how you arrived at this decision.' Hanage looked past him at Rayson. "'You should ask Rayson,' he said. But Rayson had risen and was sauntering towards the door. "'I'm off,' he remarked, looking backwards and nodding his farewells. "'If I stay here any longer, I shall have nightmare. Time you fellows were in bed, too. How's the millenni fun, Colonel?' The Colonel's face relaxed. A smile of genuine pleasure lit up his features. "'Going strong,' he declared triumphantly. "'We will ship him off for Italy next week with a very tidy little check in his pocket. Dear old Dobson gave us ten pounds, and the concert fund is turning out well.' Wrayson lit a cigarette and looked back from the open door. "'You're more at home with philanthropy than horrors, Colonel,' he remarked. "'Good night, everybody.' End of chapter 20 Recording by Tom Weiss, tomsaudiobooks.com.